This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. It's great to be back. Happy, happy Sunday, uh, Saturday rather, and happy uh, uh, Labor Day weekend. Thank you for being here on a holiday weekend. Um, I want to say that um, for the last two days, uh, Mako and I both have been um, <clears throat> continuously on Zoom from morning till evening um, at a uh, an online conference of the Soto Zen Buddhist Association, which is a meeting of priests uh, in the Japanese school of Soto Zen that we practice. And um, <clears throat> uh, I heard this set of squares that we're all looking at referred to as the waffle, which I kind of liked. So um, greetings to the waffle. Uh, and I want to say um, I'm kind of fried, so I'm hoping that this talk makes sense to you all, and I expect there will be lots of questions anyway. Um, so um, here we go. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if there are any newcomers this morning, um, but if there are, welcome. And thank you all for your presence and your practice. Um, today I want to offer some words about ancestors which is a kind of preoccupation of mine. Um, and I'm going to be talking about the history of the United States and about our ongoing struggles with our past, uh, both as individuals in America um, and as a collective, or maybe collectives, various kinds of collectives and communities. And so before I really begin the talk itself, I want to say something about uh, my use in this talk of the words we and our. Um, so first to situate myself, I am speaking as a practice leader. I am a white person, past middle age. <laughs> and uh, I use the pronouns she and her. Um, and my personal ancestors are Italian immigrants. Um, and I am here before you with these factors sitting on the cushion with me and I'm speaking from that place. And so I want to acknowledge that what I am going to offer is conditioned by all of this and a whole lot more, which I, I won't take the time to mention. <clears throat> it will probably be apparent as I, as I speak some of the other factors that condition what I'm going to say. Um, so what I am trying to convey or express by using we and our is the current shared moment in this country, actually not just this country, but I'm gonna focus on this country, which is so differently experienced uh, in this country. And for followers of Zen, the we that I'm talking about sometimes is the community of practitioners and a shared practice. So, we means those residing here in the United States, and we also and especially means right here in this place together. We honored followers of the Buddha. I mean Sangha, you all and me and the community of practice and of suffering and of liberation from suffering. So with that as preamble, in these days in this country, and as I said, not only in this country, we are reckoning with a national history, 
We are also reckoning with a history that extends before the United States became a nation state. And that, of course, is the impact of arrivals of Europeans in the Americas. That is to say, with the impact of colonialism and colonization. We are in conflict over who we are and what our responsibility for this history is. Recently, especially recently, black people especially are asking, demanding that we recognize and, respect and accept responsibility for what their enslaved ancestors suffered from the start of the transatlantic slave trade 400 years ago and long past the end of legal slavery. Black people want us here and now in the United States to acknowledge what they suffered and what they contributed to building the country and creating a place where millions of immigrants could come and try their chances at the so-called American dream. And immigrants are still coming from all over or trying to. There has been a dream of prosperity, a dream of security, of opportunity, where the next generation would be better off than the present one that still draws people, even in this moment in this country. It drew my family about a century ago now. It is often said we are a nation of immigrants. And then there are many in the United States right now who are newcomers descended from immigrants, whether our forebears arrived hundreds of years ago or yesterday. But what made this country a place where newcomers could arrive and start a new life is the enslavement for centuries of black people starting before the country was founded. And we also know that the immigrants who were most welcomed were white. And the vision of the founders of the United States was a full citizenship for white property-owning men. Quotas and exclusionary rules curtailed or stopped immigrants <clears throat> from Asia and also from Southern Europe for over half a century in attempts to preserve and enhance the proportion of the population that was white. And my grandfather arrived in this country just ahead of the, those quotas being imposed in the early 20th century. Before all of this, before the first slave ship arrived in Virginia, indigenous territories, cultures, and lives were forfeited. The histories of brown people, of the Chinese, then the Japanese, are suffering, exclusion, hatred, resentment, and suspicion, all of which have long histories. You know, and to keep this from becoming even more of a history lecture, I am not going to continue in this vein. But of course, I could, and we could talk about this for the rest of the day, and I expect we'll be talking about it um, collectively for a very long time. I hope we will. So what I've just given you in a page or two is a very incomplete account of the past in just this nation. And part of this moment is a struggle not only over the history of this country, over justice, privilege, and rights right now, but over ancestors. Ancestors who are remembered, monumentalized, and honored. Ancestors who were set up at different points in new and evolving civic genealogies as a way of building a collective American identity. 
we certainly saw one aspect of this attempt to create uh, a kind of genealogy or to count or to create ancestors honored ancestors recently in the struggles over confederate monuments which were set up generations after the end of the civil war monuments that were meant to reaffirm white supremacy many decades later then there are the founders of the united states who are supposed to be national ancestors but are being held to account now for their slaveholding and in the case of some like thomas jefferson their multiple sexual assaults of enslaved women statues of columbus who is now understood as the catalyst for enslavement disease death and destruction of indigenous peoples in the americas are coming down there are others in this list as well of formerly honored ancestors, Father Sarah in California, uh, the Catholic missionary, and the conquistador Juan Oñate in New Mexico, to name just two. Uh, we are examining the full legacy of recent American icons such as John Muir, uh, the founder of the Sierra Club and the Great Naturalist, and Margaret Sanger, uh, who championed birth control. The reckoning even if sometimes motivated by a desire to protect institutional interests, it goes very far, as it should. Now, before continuing, I want to pause and go back to Columbus. The story of how he got a holiday and the statues is a convoluted one, but what I want to emphasize or point to is that getting Columbus inscribed in the national consciousness as a kind of proto-founder of the nation was important at the time that it happened in the 19th century. It was a way to make Italians acceptable as Americans. Southern Italians in particular were legally white, but not regarded as fully white socially, and especially in the American South. Their practice of Catholicism was suspect, as was their appearance and their supposed criminality. The objective in making Columbus the quote-unquote discoverer of the quote-unquote new world was to create an Italian-American ancestor who could be seen as a civilized and civilizing figure. And it is a sign of our times that Columbus has joined the ranks of rejected ancestors. But his original insertion into the list of founders was a sign of those times, an attempt by one group of immigrants who were discriminated against and who suffered sometimes suffered violence to claim a place in American space and time through presenting an acceptable national ancestor. And this is an example, I think, of the yearning to have a place in the national lineage, the national genealogy, the national family tree, one that was overwhelmingly Northern European and Protestant, and to be included and accepted in the body politic. I like that term in these days, the body politic. So for those in the present who see Columbus as a heroic figure of our history, there is resistance to losing a lineage holder because his removal challenges the stories of who we are and what we represent. And for Italian Americans, it may challenge our sense of worthiness as well as our suffering. And I retail this story because uh, it's a kind of personal story, but also because it's very human. We can talk about other groups who also have this experience of wanting to belong and trying to find a way um, to belong. 
So it's interesting to me to think about how much ancestors still mean to us in our mobile, constantly relocating and reinventing society. I think ancestors embody, embody authenticity, which we all kind of crave in some way. Ancestor veneration is part of the earliest ritual practices in societies around the world, going back at least 10,000 years and, and possibly even longer. And if you have been around Zen for a while, you will be familiar with the prominence of ancestors in Buddhist practice and thought. Zen teachings are full of stories of ancestral teachers, and it is a well-established practice to chant the names of the teachers in Zen temples, beginning with the uh, historical Buddha, actually even before the historical Buddha, into mythic time, through India, China, and Japan, all the way to the founder of our lineage branch, uh, Shunryu Suzuki who came to the United States in the 1950s and founded the San Francisco Zen Center. Even allowing for the fact that some parts of this genealogy are not what we would call historically true, we just chant it. The lineage represents a chain of transmission through time and space, starting with the Buddhas before Buddha and ending uh, with, um, if not with Shunryu Suzuki in some temples, ends with uh, Dogen and his immediate successor in 13th century Japan, the founder of the Soto Zen I mentioned before that we practice. Here in Austin, the chant ends with the founder of this temple um, and the lineage represents ideal continuity and relationship. Only in the past couple of decades have we confronted the incompleteness of the list of these ancestors that is chanted <clears throat> in so many Soto Zen temples. <clears throat> Due to the efforts of many women and also men, we now have a list of women teachers that mirrors the structure of the other list, the list, the so-called list of Buddhas and ancestors. And this list of women puts Indian ancestors first, starting uh, from the time of the Buddha, in fact, with the Buddha's family, then Chinese, then Japanese. None of these women ancestors inherited the Dharma from each other in the way that Zen considers authentic. They could not do that as they were not abbots of temples until the very last woman on the list, someone named Chiono. She formally inherited the Dharma from her Chinese Rinzai Zen teacher in Japan. And she founded a training temple for women in Kyoto. This temple itself is no longer in existence, but was once the highest ranked of five such Rinzai temples for women in Kyoto. And it now survives in a different temple called Hokyoji, uh, which traces its female lineage back to Chiono. So she is a kind of uh, critical figure in this list of women that we now have. It is interesting to me to note that the women's lineage that we now sometimes chant ends with her, uh, also because her lifetime overlaps with that of Dogen and his immediate successors. But what also occurs with Chiono is the formal entrustment and empowerment of a Zen woman as a full teacher and abbess. Earlier women, even though several were recognized as enlightened, fully realized by their male teachers, did not inherit their teacher's temples or their full teaching authority. 
Now, despite the protests from some quarters that this list of women is not a real lineage because it does not record an actual institutional passing of authority, we can recognize that the male lineage also has its gaps and myths, and we can focus on what is important in having a women's list, the power of ancestors and claims to belong among the ancestors. We should recognize the women's list as a kind of restitution or reparations. And these women are not ancestors of women practitioners in the present alone. This list recognizes and restores women to the inheritance of Zen, of the teaching and the passing on of the teaching, body to body, mind to mind. So these various examples of constructed genealogies, right, national, ethnic, religious, we can think of many, many more, I'm sure, lead to a general question. And before asking it, I want to say again that I use the terms our and we with caution and advisedly. And I'm speaking to a Sangha in America at a time when all ancestors are scrutinized and new ones are being invoked. And the question is this, what and who are our ancestors now? What do we do with our past and the ancestors we have been given, the ones that I just mentioned, national, ethnic, racial, and spiritual, now that we are looking closely, challenging prevailing narratives? You know, what about cultural appropriation? In our Zen lineage, we were entrusted with the teaching in the forms that we use by Asian teachers our Asian teachers who came here to bring the Dharma to us Americans or to us in America. And I feel that this entrustment was a gift. Even though I don't know the languages and I practice in this body, not a Japanese one, I feel affinity and gratitude. And when I hear black people and indigenous people invoking their ancestors, I feel a kind of resonance and deep respect although of course I don't claim the same ancestors and I wouldn't. I feel compassion for Italian forebears who wanted to be accepted in their new home and who worked to insert Columbus into the national shared story. That compassion does not cancel out what Columbus and other quote unquote explorers <clears throat> did. I have to hold both what they did and compassion. I feel compassion and resonance with everyone doing genealogical research, searching for their lineages to understand their place in the world, to understand who they are in the most fundamental flesh and blood for those whose ancestors left no written trace. And so we are tracing our ancestors in our very DNA. And even for those who embrace imagined ancestral communities, sometimes exclusive ones, ones that allow them to claim supremacy and use and supremacy that denigrates and oppresses others because I think I have some sense of where they are trying to come from. All of these instances point to the power of ancestors and the idea of lineage and the deep desire to belong in some kind of family. But how do we hold it all? Here I want to turn to the experiences of several persons of color who have recently written of their experience in the times that we have been living in, in the last several months. Uh, the first of them is the experience of the scholar, 
of Buddhism and Soto Zen priest, Duncan Ryukan Williams. Duncan Williams was born in Japan. Uh, his mother is Japanese and his father is British. And some of you may know him as the author of the book uh, American Sutra, which is a fundamental uh, book about the history of the internment of Japanese Americans during the Second World War. On Juneteenth of this year, he took the oath of American citizenship in the midst of COVID and therefore with no guests to observe and share and celebrate the event. And since he was, uh, the, the instruction was to dress formally, he wore his priest robes to his naturalization. And he was masked and distanced from, even from others who were there for the same purpose. About this event, he wrote, quote, an invisible thread of connection as immigrants to this country waiting for our chance to walk into a new sense of possibility and belonging was all too apparent. We had not planned this crossing of paths at this particular place in this particular moment. Yet here we were in relationship with one another. What struck me most at that moment, says uh, Ryukan, was how this line towards citizenship illustrates a central truth of Buddhism, interconnectedness, which extends backwards and forwards in time through people and generations and histories. Who we are right now is the karmic linkage between the past and the future, end quote. And he went on in this uh, post to invoke the history behind Juneteenth, which was again, the exact day that he became a citizen. And he said some names, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, David McAtee. The son of a Japanese mother, he invoked the Japanese in turn during the Second World War in this country. And still he became a citizen and accepting it all, he was inscribed in the lineage of this country. Now, because of my own family history, I found this encounter inspiring, but I want to place it against a wrenching op-ed, I believe it was in the New York Times, written in June, also in June, when the Confederate monuments in places like Richmond, Virginia, the, the former capital of the Confederacy, were coming down, were being torn down to the joy of many and the anger and anguish of others. Carolyn Randall Williams, a black writer in residence at Vanderbilt University, wrote of these statues, if they want monuments, this is a quote, if they want monuments, well then, my body is a monument, my skin is a monument. She said, what is a monument but a standing memory? An artifact to make tangible the truth of the past. My body and blood are a tangible truth of the South and its past. The black people I come from were owned by the white people I come from. The white people I come from fought and died for their lost cause. And I ask you now, who dares to tell me to celebrate them?
Who dares to ask me to accept their mounted pedestals? And she replies for herself, you cannot dismiss me as someone who doesn't understand. You cannot say it wasn't my family members who fought and died. My blackness does not put me on the other side of anything. It puts me squarely at the heart of the debate. I don't just come from the South. I come from Confederates. So I am not an outsider who makes these demands. I am a great, great granddaughter." End quote. So actually, this is the reckoning. It's written in the body. How do we respond to this reckoning? And how do the teachings help us? The black teacher, Zenju Earthland Manuel, writes about how she spoke with her African ancestors when grappling with being assigned menial work early in her Zen training. You know, if you've been around Zen temples, you know that often if you're new, you get asked to do some task that seems kind of, um, it might seem demeaning. And she came to see the temple as a place where her ancestors had brought her to transform her suffering. She says, and I quote, I began to see the ascendance from enslaved Africans as a sanctioned and gifted walk toward the very liberation the Buddha spoke of and what the ancestors saw for me and everyone else. And in this, I hear an echo of what Duncan Williams says at the end of his account. Duncan said, quote, we think freedom is about independence, but actually freedom is about interdependence. He said, as I celebrate my first Independence Day as a US citizen, I join a lineage of American ancestors who have all taught us that the project of emancipation in America cannot be accomplished alone. The journey to liberation extends across generations and communities. We are simultaneously surrounded by all those who have come before us and all those who will come after us. All of us inexorably tied together, every single one of us implicated in the struggle to actualize freedom. So, you know, so as a Zen priest, the Reverend Williams uses the Buddhist idea of a lineage as both a line and as a circle, we are simultaneously in a line and or a line and we are surrounded as well by ancestors. So here's the place where I would like to invoke ancestor Dogen Zenji, the founder of Soto Zen, to help understand how to hold it all. Dogen is the founder of our Soto Zen way of practice, again, living in the 13th century in Japan. And I am thinking of the chant we sometimes chant before lectures when we're uh, often in a monastery, this is chanted. It's called the Ehe Koso Hotsugan Mon, which means High Ancestor Dogen's Aspiration Vow. And it's, it's actually derived from another sutra of Dogen, the Mountains and Waters Sutra, in case you're interested. The first line of this is, this is Dogen, we vow with all beings from this life on, throughout countless lives, to hear the true Dharma, that upon hearing it, no doubt will arise in us, nor will we lack in faith, that upon meeting it, we shall renounce worldly affairs 
and maintain the Buddha Dharma, and that in doing so, the great earth and all living beings together will attain the Buddha way. So we do not attain the Buddha way by ourselves any more than we vow by ourselves. The great earth and all living beings together attain the Buddha way. Dogen says, revering Buddhas and ancestors, we are one Buddha and one ancestor. Awakening Bodhi mind or uh, aspiration mind, wisdom mind, we are one Bodhi mind. So this sentence points at a non-duality, not separating. There's no way to separate ourselves from anything else. We are the ancestors. They are not in the past. They are not even somebody else. And not only are we not separate from each other, as we often think, we are one ancestor and we are one Buddha, one reality. Dogen goes on to quote another Zen master named Lungya, Chinese master who lived 400 years before he did, so 1200 years ago. Lungya said, <clears throat> those who in past lives were not enlightened will now be enlightened. In this life, save the body, which is the fruit of many lives. Before Buddhas were enlightened, we were the, they were the same as we. Enlightened people of today are exactly as those of old. So this phrase really strikes home for me right now. Save the body, which is the fruit of many lives. This body, your body, my body, Carolyn Williams' body. But I also ask, who was it who was not enlightened in the past? When we wake up, everyone wakes up. You know, when Buddha woke up, he looked up and saw the morning star and all beings awoke with him. When we wake up, everyone wakes up throughout space and time. There is no separation between beings now or ever. That is the non-dual teaching of Buddhism, so hard, so difficult to fully grasp, to realize. This is Dogen's vision of complete interbeing. And Dogen concludes um, this chant that we chant by calling on us to confess and repent before the ancestors. In this way, he says, to explore the farthest reaches of these causes and conditions and disclose our lack of faith and practice realization. And he says we can count on their help, the ancestors' help, if we do this. Dogen says, he ends, this is the pure and simple color of true practice, of the true mind of faith, of the true body of faith. So the reckoning, the response to what is happening now calls for confession and repentance and a measure of as much courage as we can muster. Can we followers of the Buddha join this reckoning as followers of the Buddha, not just as ourselves, individuals, but as followers of the Buddha? Even if we are as ourselves fueled by great anger and deep pain to arrive at a place of wholeness and compassion, to deeply explore the causes and conditions, as Dogen urged, seeing all the suffering and all the ancestors 
that have brought us here now. You know, what are the odds that any of us in the waffle <laughs> would find this path? Our practice calls us to see both the relative, that is the particular, including the ancestors we choose or are given by time and place, to see that and the absolute. Merging difference and unity is not some kind of spiritual bypass. We would not be here without all of our ancestors, and we are all linked through all space and time. Reverend Zenju, whom I quoted earlier, uh, also said, and this is a quote, one cannot be non-dual or non-separate. We can't make non-duality happen. It is not in our control. Thank goodness. We experience non-duality through our dual lives, our everyday lives. We are embodied and therefore our duality, the black and white of it, the experience of our bodies, our lives, are gateways to non-duality. When we know ourselves to be completely interrelated, like our global experience with COVID, our current suffering under military tactics, then we treat each other's lives more sacredly. The ancient spiritual teaching of no self means we do not exist without relationships to what's in the world. Our engagement with everything is crucial, especially today. Are there any questions, comments, expressions? I have a comment. Sarah, hi. Um, hi. I just want to make a comment of appreciation. Um, it's nice to see indigeneity mentioned and brought up because it's such a foundational thing in this country. And for people to think of the ancestors, I think of my ancestors a lot, um, almost every day, thinking, am I doing for them what I should be doing? But I think it's interesting that you talk about the conflict between, like in your own life, you know, the, the history of then and now and Columbus, for instance, you brought up, because, you know, I have white ancestors as well as indigenous ancestors, and some of them were not good people at all. And to try and tie that together, I struggle with that, you know, feeling guilty of having those ancestors because some of them caused harm to my other ancestors. So it's a very difficult thing. And I just, I appreciate you bringing that up and it, it helps me to think about it more because it's just something that's always been difficult. Well, thank you. I mean, I wanna make clear that I, it's why I spoke so much about we and are, that this moment of Black Lives Matter, we are, we are putting that out front, you know, but, this history, these histories extend so much further. And um, I th I'm, one could say so much more about the indigenous peoples in this country, and I just didn't in this talk, but I wanted to somehow include it. So thank you. And, you know, Columbus, Columbus Day, you know, we were, we were kind of proud to celebrate that when I was a kid. And I'm deeply uncomfortable with Columbus Day now, while I understand the history of how it came to be, 
you know, and uh, so I'm, I don't want to reject my ancestors or my immigrant ancestors, and I also can't escape, you know, the karma that accompanies all of this. So that's part of where this talk is coming from, just personally for me. I also don't want to compare my experience at all or my family's experience in this country to the suffering of people of color and especially of black people. So thank you, Sarah, for your comment. I appreciate it. Mary, I, you got to unmute yourself there. So I want to thank you so much for your talk. It has given me so much to, to reflect on and think about and is in keeping with a part of um, some other things that I have been re reading. Um, it reminds me of the Walt, there's a Walt Whitman poem, something about we are multitudes. And I, I, I was gonna Google the quote or whatever, but anyway, I, I, I just, when the Black Lives Matter folks talk, a lot of times I think that the message that doesn't come across it, um, is that a an individual Black American is really sort of multicultural, and we do embody um, that interconnectedness. If we look at our genealogy, we see how interconnected we are. Um, my family comes from South Louisiana, which is um, notable for the history of something called the one drop rule. And the reason for the one drop rule was because there was so much um, intermingling and, uh, um, and, and so many hybrids of the African slaves with the white slave owners that there had to be um, some way to um, legally, the, the power structure felt like they had to control that. But the one drop rule means that if you have one drop of African blood in you, then you are by definition a black American. And what is fascinating about that is that it is said that the genetic basin of man is from Africa. So in some way, in terms of interconnectedness, I'm not the only um, Black American, African American, let's say, visibly in a particular group. Even if I am among European Americans, Asian Americans, um, indigenous Americans, I can say, we are all African in some way. And I bear the burden uh, in a way of the, my Confederate slave owner ancestors, my American Indian ancestors who actually married into my family 
um, as well as my slave ancestors. So it's just like all of it. And I don't, I don't know if ever, anybody else ever thinks this way, but let us acknowledge, you know, it's, it's like the DNA. It's, we're, that, the, the thing about Buddhism and the idea of interconnectedness is that truth be told, we're all together, but some of us decided to identify characteristics to oppress and suppress others of us. And the unique thing about the Emancipation Proclamation and slavery in the United States is that after quote unquote freedom was awarded, there was a continued and continues to be an ongoing legal, structural, systemic suppression of people who identify as what is now uh, termed African-American or what historically was called colored. When I was growing up, we used to be colored people. Now we're African-American, black Americans. I embrace it all. I'm all of it. I'm, you know, just all of it. And in some ways, so are you. So when we, when the Black Lives Matter movement wants to improve our civic structures, it's all of us. It's all of us. We've, we've, we've got brothers who are racist, and we have to try to work with them because racism, some of their racism is because of greed, and some of it is because of fear. And we bridging with those brothers and sisters is um, our challenge. Um, it's our ongoing work, and it will be our ongoing work till the day we die. And I want to thank you so much for your talk uh, and for, um, for kind of reminding me of all of this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I want black people and I want Black Lives Matter to be, to be I want to listen. You know, I really, really want to listen. And so I, I don't want to presume, I hope I haven't presumed too much to speak for people of color in trying to talk about it. You know, Carolyn Williams, who the writer who said, you know, my body's a Confederate monument. Um, it was so compelling. You know, and I don't want to try to resituate that as some kind of like, okay, now I'm a Buddhist teacher and I'm going to tell Carolyn Williams what her, what that means, you know, but I saw it as liberating of, you know, this duality. Like, I am a Confederate monument. I come from both sides of these people. And I have, I can make a demand as a great-granddaughter. And she is the great-granddaughter of Edmund Pettus, for whom that bridge is named. The Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. She knows something about her genealogy that not everybody in this country knows, especially African-Americans. She knows a lot about the white genealogy in her family. It's, you know, it's like devastating, but where she came to seemed to me to be a place where she's liberating herself and others from this idea of separation. The terrible truth of it, we have to find liberation in these terrible truths. There's no way, there's no other way. And I think about, um, you know, I also think about um, recently having reread The Fire Next Time, 
you know, the constant returning to we need each other. There's no way we we're, we're we're together. You know, this has been said before by many people of color. Thank you for saying it again. How do we do it? Anyone else? Richard, hi. Uh, I want to ask a question about the idea of caucusing. Um, I was in a, a workshop with Angel Kyoto Williams, and she talked about the necessity of people who are, you know, quote unquote white or black, sort of caucusing in individual spaces so that they can discuss the cons the ideas that are are about that they have to work on, right? And so I, I uh, this idea of we are all together is in the ultimate sense true, I think, but in the relative sense, we have to maybe work in caucuses to some extent to work on what's relevant to our societally ascribed identity. Would you agree with that? And, and do you think that, you know, that, that there's something to be said for, you know, saying we're all together, together and connected, but we have to, on, on some level, have to have some boundaries around, you know, white people need to do some work that's different from the work that black people need to do to end white supremacy and, and racism. Would you, you know what I'm saying? Completely agree. And, you know, um, Angel Kyoto Williams is, uh, calls for this. And so does Enju, you know, she talks about a place of sanctuary, right? A place where you're not, as, as was said at the conference I was just at, where uh, people of color are not subject to the white gaze, you know, and have a space where they can be themselves and feel safe. And, and um, yeah, and I think definitely white people need to confront whiteness and white supremacy. And that is, that can be done in many ways, but, but, but doing it ourselves in order to really, you know, we can call, we learn how to call each other out we learn how to, you know, do that in a way where, you know, we are allies to each other by saying, let's confront the truth of our situation, right? So I completely agree with that. I think it's necessary. And really at the end of my talk, I was pointing to, you know, the ultimate teachings of Buddhism, which is non-duality, while at the same time, you know, Zenju is saying we, we, might, we get there through the gate of duality, right? So we do this work in duality and we we approach a more perfect union, <laughs> I, that, that is my hope. Thank you. Thank you. It's hard. Also, I wanna to say to my home Sangha, uh, this is the first time I have tried to uh, speak about racism or about you know, our history and our current situation something we've been exhorted to do as uh, Zen priests um, by the Soto Zen Buddhist Association and many others to, to get out of our safety zones and talk. It took me a long time to figure out where I could speak from. And so um, I really appreciate your listening. And even if you're not uh, saying anything that, that you, you heard me um, and I welcome feedback, um, whether it's now or any other time, if there's something that um, you want to express to me or that you uh, that bothered you or seemed you know like you want to you want to hear more about what what I meant or you know my intention um, I really welcome your feedback so um, I and I very deeply appreciate your attention
right now. I just wanted to say thank you so much for a, a wonderful, a brilliant talk and for the comments um, and questions that followed. Um, it was stimulating and thought provoking and, and very deep, so thank you. Thank you very much.